0: My name is Seamus Toody, I'm the the Irish Secretary of the the NUJ and my first job I suppose is just to to thank the Dublin Freelance Branch uh, for organising the Freelance Forum, which happens twice a year. Uh, It used to be run directly by the Irish Office and it was a hit and miss affair. Since the Freelance Branch has become involved in organising it, it's become an important uh, feature of the the union and uh, I want in particular in acknowledging the work of the branch to thank Ger Cunningham who really is the person who puts it all together and uh, thanks very much Ger. I suppose many of you are not members of the NUJ and you're students starting out in uh, a career where it's going to be quite difficult to get a li- to make a living uh, and there's a lot of negativity about uh, journalism and trying, uh, how hard it is to get into journalism. What I would say is um, you're moving up near the front, anyone coming in late moves up to the front. Uh, the, what I would say to you is that journalism is a great profession. Uh, it's interesting, it's challenging, and it performs an important role in society, none of which helps you pay the rent. And the job of the NUJ is to try to uh, seek uh, improved terms and conditions of employment, as well as being a voice for professional journalism and ethical journalism. And I would encourage you to if you're not a member and if you, to join and if you're a student you are entitled to union membership as a student. Uh, we don't just represent writers, photographers, we also represent press officers. So those of you who work in the fields of public relations in the broadest sense are also entitled to join. There are a number of issues in relation currently the competition authority in Ireland has prohibited collective representation for journalists. But just to be clear, that does not mean that we cannot give you advice. It does not mean that you can't be represented by a union. It is an enormously, le- legally it's a very fraught area. It's not something that I'm going to deal with this morning. But that's not a reason for not being in the NUJ. Uh, and we can help you in many ways, including in the area of debt collection, uh, but also in terms of making representation. and. What I would say to you when you're looking at doing work for organizations, check if you know anyone who is an NEJ member in that organization because that's a really useful first step. You're going to have, have a really good panel today. Make the most of it. Make the most of meeting one another. And above all else, enjoy the day because it's quite difficult to just turn off the mobile phone and do turn it off. You can tweet afterwards or tweet during lunchtime. Just turn it off and enjoy the, the, the unusual opportunity to actually talk to real people uh, without it being mediated by technology. I know that sounds like an old fogey thing to say but it is, it is important as well. Earlier this month uh, I met Jodie Clark, the External Relations Officer of the UNHCR, uh, Associate of the UNHCR, and we talked about updating an existing booklet which is not a guideline but guidance. On the reporting of refugees and how the media deals with refugees, so I was pleased then when the freelance branch asked that <coughs> Jody would deliver uh, your opening, the opening address this morning. We are we are putting the final touches to the updated version. Uh, in addition to that, Jody must have have spoken about having some form of dialogue with working journalists and media organisations which probably take, will take the form of a round table. And I've had a very positive response from the Press Council of Ireland, and I'm hoping that the BAI will come on board as well. And what we have in mind is a, a Chatham House Rules type of engagement uh, where people would turn around and say, not how do we deal with the problem, because I don't see the, the arrival of uh, bright, intelligent, highly motivated, uh, well-educated uh, Syrians as a problem for Irish society. The problem is Irish society viewing these, the refugees as a problem and looking at this as something and I, I wear two hats, I'm also on the Executive of Congress and the Irish Congress of Trade Unions is already has already indicated a willingness to use Congress training centres for instance as a means of provision of training courses uh, but also as kind of welcome centres effectively uh, when people arrive in. I don't think we need another set of guidelines. But what we do need is some guidance. Guidance around even cultural awareness of interviewing refugees. Recognizing as well that the standards we set in relation to reporting for Irish people are the same for whether you're covering travellers or whether you're covering Dennis O'Brien, or well, maybe not Dennis O'Brien, or, or, or a, a, I'll probably now find this tape is actually going to end up in who stole the memory stick but, uh, but, 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 all, but also that we, 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 we recognise that those in difficulty those who find themselves the unintended subject of news have exactly the same rights as public figures have exactly the same rights as everyone else and the NUJ code of conduct is important in that respect as well and as young journalists and not so young journalists and as aspiring journalists and people thinking of becoming journalists I would say to you that the NUJ code is not, we don't expect you to get up in the morning and kneel towards Hedlund House or Spencer Rowe and sort of recite the code but it it provides a framework, it provides a reference which actually says what you do is important Uh, and it's not just about making money. One company that I deal with where there has been a significant change of ownership and management have now taken to calling journalists data providers or content providers now over my dead body will I become the Irish Secretary of the National Union of Content <laughs> Providers uh, and newspapers have become product. I suppose if you employ managers who used to work in Legal or Aldi or Tesco and know nothing about journalism, that's what you get. That's a challenge that we face but actually, like all challenges, uh, it's something to be welcomed and the uh, you know, today is about examining all of the options, all of the opportunities that are available to journalists, mainly freelance journalists, in making a living in a landscape which has changed and how you uh, carve out a niche within that space. I suppose, rather than handing back to Jared, hand back to Jodie, I'm now going to introduce Jodie Clark, who is the External Relations Associate of UNHCR. And in doing that, I'm also going to welcome Niall, who's also here from UNHCR. He's currently working as a, an intern, but he really could probably teach Jody a, a lot because I worked with Niall in the Yes Equality campaign office, and he was one of the quiet people who didn't say very much, but got the job done. So good luck with the overdue, uh, Over to you, Jody.
1: Um, Thanks very much Seamus. Um, First of all I just want to say um, thanks very much to Seamus for suggesting that I come along today and thanks to Jared then for sending the invite. Um, I really do value the opportunity to talk to a group of journalists. I've never spoken to a group of people before and said anything about myself but um, today I'll make an exception just by saying that I am a former journalist and a freelancer at that um, so I have some idea as to the demands that some of you may be under. Um, And because of that, um, I see one of my roles here in the office here in Dublin and the role of the office here in Dublin to provide you with unbiased information that makes me and makes our office a trustworthy source of information um, that you can rely on. If I can't be quoted at the very least, I can give you a steer on what might be happening. you know, I am the data provider, as James was talking <laughs> there about, about a second ago. It's up to you then, it's over to you then, to analyse and to, you know, to make conclusions based on the information I give you. you know, Journalism is such an important institution and um, I want to be seen to be there to support it as best I can. Um, that work's going to become more important than ever over the next two years because in a number of months, uh, weeks, months, um, the first group of 4,000 people, um, asylum seekers and refugees, um, are going to be relocated and resettled here in Ireland. Um, They're going to be made up of a group of people about two and a half thousand who will be relocated directly from Italy and Greece as asylum seekers Mm -hmm. and um, another 500 or so who will be resettled directly from Lebanon where they are now refugees. the, the Irish pledge was for 4,000 people, so there are another 1,000 to come. We don't know whether they're going to be relocated or resettled yet. The, those figures still have to be uh, sorted out. Um, so the language that we use to you know, describe these people are coming here, it's very important to us that journalists get that right. I have to say that for the most part here in Ireland, journalists certainly have got it right. But I do despair when I you know, look, looked at one well-known and respected wire agency this morning that talked about a surge of migrants into Slovenia this morning, You know, army surge Wasps swarm, you know, people, you know, they arrive. And, you know, I had to actually remind myself it was redolent of language used back in 1938 um, in one one well known British newspaper which talked about um, German Jews pouring into Germany. You know, that language wasn't right then and it's not right now either. Um, And, um, you know, it's important that we get that right because how, you know, we reflect those in our newspapers and radio broadcasts, you know, as I said, people have got it right here, I would say in Ireland, you know, it's going to it's going to re- uh, resonate with the, with the public at large. Um, now, as well, that article talked about migrants who were coming into, into Slovenia, but the fact is that the vast majority of the people that are now crossing into Europe are from refugee-producing countries. So we've had 615,000 people as of this morning that have arrived in Europe uh, by sea. Uh, the vast majority of those are refugees they're from. If, if you look at the, and the most popular route for refugees at the moment is into, um, into Greece, where 10 times as many people have crossed this year. Um, Now, of those people, if you go to a website, it's really great, it's called data.unhcr.org. It gives you the full breakdown of nationalities crossing the Mediterranean at the moment, both into Italy and into Greece. It's a great resource, but it'll show you that more or less, uh, into Greece, about 70% of people are Syrians, about 18% are Afghans, and about 4% are Syrians, excuse me, Iraqis. So we're talking about well over 90% of people are from three specific countries um, and the reasons that they're fleeing, well, you can pretty much um, draw your own conclusions as to why, the, why they are. Um, so, um, so it's very important then that we look at this as being a refugee crisis rather than a migrant one. That's not to say that those everyone crossing the Mediterranean does not have rights, of course they all have rights, but it's important to us that we do distinguish between the two groups. Because states have a specific legal responsibility towards refugees, that's reflected in the 1951 Refugee Convention, which talks about the rights that states have, uh, so the obligations that states have to provide safety to people who are fleeing war and conflict. Um, a Gill put it really well yesterday in the Sunday Times, if anyone read his piece, when he talked about people um, fleeing when there's no light. Sorry, fleeing when there's um, when there's no light left in the tunnel because the tunnel has been blown up. You know, They're the people that are actually crossing the Mediterranean at the moment. Um, they're not here you know, to take our jobs, to move into nice holiday homes on the coast and the like. They're here because, you know, because they have no other choice. Um, they want a safe life for themselves and their families. They want a school place for their child. I'll get onto that in a second, the fact that you know, about 200,000 children in Jordan have no place in school. Uh, and that's sort of one of the reasons why people are crossing. Um, so look, that gives you a pretty good idea as to who is crossing the Mediterranean at the moment. Now, it would be easy to draw the conclusion, uh, based on what we've seen on our TV screens and in newspapers this summer, that everyone and anyone is coming to Europe. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm sorry to uh, you know, burst th- this bubble that might uh, you know, might, uh, might uh, be there in some quarters, uh, in the public sphere anyways, but the vast majority of refugees do not live in Europe or the Western world. Eighty-six percent of refugees around the world live in poor and developing countries. In fact, if you look at the top 10 refugee-hosting countries in the world, not one of them is a European country. In fact, not one of them is what we would call a country in the West. Um, The mega-crisis from Syria and Iraq has displaced 15 million people, but even outside of Jordan and Lebanon Turkey, these countries that host millions of refugees, uh, you think of Iran and Pakistan, which between them host 2.5 million people, Afghans, and have done so without much fanfare uh, for about a generation. Um, And this gets to the heart of what's happening in Europe at the moment and why it's so important that Europe gets it right. Because if Europe, this great continent of ours, says that we can't do this right, that we can't take in these people, then what hope is there that all these other countries will say that we should do so either? So you think of uh, Kenya, which has the world's largest refugee camp in Dadaab in the north of the country, hosts about 400,000 people. is isn't a very pleasant place to live, I haven't been there a few times. you know What hope is there that Kenya will say we will continue hosting these people if the Europeans say they can't? Or what hope is there that Ethiopia or Uganda, which hosts hundreds of thousands of refugees that have fled South Sudan in the past year, and nine months, uh, that they'll continue doing so? So that's why it's so important that we get it right here at the moment. So as that moves me on, after talking about who is actually crossing the Mediterranean and coming here to Europe uh, and Ireland, uh, to why they're coming. Well, as you can imagine, uh, war is pretty much the biggest reason. The past five years, we've had 15 new wars that have broken out. Uh, around the world, you think of South Sudan. Obviously, when you think outside of, uh, when you think outside of Syria and Iraq, but as well Afghanistan, Somalia, these countries. Um, but as well, what's actually happened as well in the last year is that the funding for humanitarian organisations working in these countries where people are hosted. Um, has, uh, has, has has dropped significantly. So the United Nations own uh, funding program for Syrian refugees is only 42% funded. And we'd be lucky if we hit 50% at the end of the year. So you're talking about food aid has been cut, people's savings have been depleted, they no longer have you know, the money to pay their rent in Jordan and Lebanon. So now you have families who are saying, well, we have no other choice, we have to move on and go somewhere else. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that we see these really large numbers coming across this year. I think in Lebanon as well, you now have to pay $200 a year to register as a refugee. I was talking to one Syrian man here the other day who lives in Ireland and he's telling me that his mum and his dad and his sister who's blind just do not have six hundred dollars to pay for them to stay in Lebanon. You know, they have no other choice but to get on a boat and get across to Europe. Now, it's been suggested you know that European policy has in some way you know emboldened traffickers to send people across the Mediterranean. But I would say that EU policy has only emboldened tr- people to cross the Mediterranean insofar as there are no safe or legal alternative routes for people to get here. So, I think of another Syrian man who lives here in Dublin, he's a restaurateur, and he recently travelled to Turkey, and he did it publicly as well, so I'm not, I'm not uh, saying anything uh, that hasn't been said around, um, and he went to Turkey to help uh, his family cross the Mediterranean. You know, was that guy a trafficker? Of course he wasn't. He was a smuggler alright, but he did it because his family had no other choice he had to help them get across the Mediterranean. He had o- no other safe way to bring them across, and that's the choice that people face now. They have no safe ways to get across, so they're being forced to cross this way. Another point on trafficking, it's been suggested as well that because we have these search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean or because Angela Merkel put up her hand and said everyone come here, that in some way has forced people, has made it people more attractive to come here. But whether you put up fences in Eastern Europe or whether you end search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean, people are going to flee anyways. You know, That's not going to prevent people from fleeing and in fact they'll find a way around it. I think another Syrian man who told me about his brother, he paid 50 euros to a trafficker in Hungary, a smuggler in Hungary. <coughs> he had to just get ac- sorry, in Serbia, they just have him get across the border into Hungary. You know, People will find a way because, as I said, they have no other choice when they have a gun at their backs in many respects. Um, so, I um, suppose so that's where we're at at the moment. We have about 600,000 people that I said have crossed the Mediterranean this year. Of that, about 700,000. Uh, we're going to have about 700,000 by the end of the year. Now, um, about a month ago, uh, the European Union came up with a plan to manage these numbers. In some respects, they acknowledged the crisis, which is very important to do. When you think about at the end of World War II, uh, Ger- um, the, um, the uh, European c- uh, governments got together and they acknowledged that there was this incredible crisis. At the end of World War II, there were still millions of refugees spread across Europe. They had to find a way to, to, to manage that. In fact, even in Hungary in 1956, ironically, 200,000 people fled Hungary, and they were all resettled in different countries. Five hundred of them came to Ireland. So looking back at that, the European Union they got together and they said, "Well, we need to find some way of managing what's happening now." So they came up with a plan that eventually has led to this uh, plan, pledge to relocate one hundred and sixty thousand people from other countries in Europe, especially Greece and Italy, to other countries in Europe. And under that plan, Ireland, as I said, would take four thousand. And this is obviously a very positive step that the European Union is going to do that. But when you think that we're going to have seven hundred thousand by the end of the year, and we're talking about relocating one hundred and sixty thousand you can imagine how effective that plan is going to be. Um, But it's really important as well, though, that as well as looking at those numbers of the people that are coming across and what additional solidarity and burden-sharing measures we can can show to Greece and Italy, who are taking all these people in, um, we need to look as well at supporting the countries that the people have fled to in the first place. So when you think of Lebanon and uh, Jordan, those sort of countries, um, where there are no more school places, as I said, where you can imagine water tables are depleted, where, um, you know, services, basic services, from education to health, you know, have just uh, just do not have the capacity to cope anymore with the people coming across. Um, but, um, so I think that there's are the sort of measures that we're going to need to look at, but uh, the most important thing, though, to say is that Europe really needs to show an example, because if we don't show the example, if countries like Ireland don't show an example, um, then, you know, what hope is it that other countries will in the future? Um, so that's where I am with that. Um, if anyone wants to ask any questions, I'm sure there'll be many. I'm more than happy to, um, to, uh, to answer them. Yep. Yeah? Just uh, to just, just bring back to journalists real quickly, uh, even just the, the, the wording used, like the, every newspaper has that battle where they're trying to decide to do you call it a refugee crisis or a migrant crisis. So like like, how should, say, like a journalist handle a situation like that where the issue is so polarized that you can't even decide on the name of the problem? Well, that's an editorial decision to make, it's not for me to say, you know. But I can de- definitely say I can describe who are the people coming across, and I can say that the vast majority of the people crossing are refugees. And if you want a definition of a refugee, you look at the 1951 Refugee Convention, which for the first time defined who is a refugee in Article 1. And as someone who has fled their country because of a well founded fear of persecution based on their race, nationality, um, r- uh, membership of a particular social group, religion, or political opinion, you know, that's what a refugee is someone who's fled their country on those grounds. Um, so again, it's up to you know a newspaper or a broadcaster whatever to describe. And I mean here in Ireland, I mean I, you know, I'm very happy to say that you know I did get calls from one or two newspaper editors and foreign editors and the like who did ask me you know how should we describe this you know, and I said well I would suggest that this is what's actually happening. But other in other areas like the BBC would still insist on in calling it a migrant crisis, um because people haven't been call- um it hasn't been decided whether people are refugees or migrants yet, but again that's an editorial decision to make you know. But it's important, you know, that we get it right, I would say, because you think that um you know, if we say that people are not refugees, that there is some way, as I said, coming here because um, because of the bright lights in Dublin and the fact that they can get A, B, and C when they come here, then we sort states can wriggle out of the responsibility then to these people. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. Is isn't it the
2: case thank you for what you said, I found it interesting. Isn't it the case that for the journalist on the ground that that the the problem presents itself <coughs> in a different way can i give you an example yeah. i wasn't working on this but i was in the south of england about 6 weeks ago and i was in kent yeah and the, the, the big issue there was dover and yeah, yeah. and people getting on the um, trying to unfortunate people trying to make their way through the through the tunnel the channel tunnel mm. and the the uh, disruption that was caused to people's lives in Dover. Mm. That trucks were parked all over the the motorway, the A two or the A three, and they had to open up a, a disused airport as a as a holding bay at Manston. For, and 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 that was the story as far as the people of Kent were concerned. Mm. They weren't particularly, as far in in as much as me talking to a few people in various places could pick up. They weren't particularly exercised about the notion of refugees because after all in the hop fields of Kent they they, they have um, lots of immigrant labour. Yeah, yeah so that that wasn't the stone but the the stone in their shoe was this this bloody awful problem as they saw that they were and I'm sure
1: it's much worse in in,
2: in Calais
1: mm-hmm. that they were at the sharp end yeah, of yeah. that particular stick yeah, that's that's an interesting point because I mean like as the politicians always say all politics is local do you know what I mean and I'm sure it's exactly the same for people living there this was the problem that they faced and obviously it caused incredible disruption to people there but to kind of put it into context there are about three thousand people in Calais and they were there for many different reasons that figure is absolutely tiny compared and all it is is it's symptomatic of what's happening in the rest of Europe and what's happening in Europe is just symptomatic of what's happening in the rest of the world (coughs) You think about it, ten years ago we had 38 million people around the world who were forcibly displaced. Now we have well over 60 million. Even before the, what's happening in Syria and Iraq was happening, more and more people around the world been forced out of their homes. All that's happened now in Europe and in Calais as well and in and Dover then, is that some of these people have decided to come to Europe. And it's a tiny, you know, it's in proportion, you know, it's, it's tiny, do you know what I mean? Um, and the reason that people are in Calais, there are many different reasons, for some, pe- I when I mean you think it again. I think Britain is about the fifth, sixth most popular destination. We call it amongst asylum seekers. Um, you know, it's quite small compared to other countries. Um, kind of going a bit beyond my brief here. we be talking about another uh, another state. But uh, what I would say is that the people that were there in Calais were um, there for many different reasons. A lot of them wanted to claim asylum in France, but there were ab- huge delays in the asylum system in France. There's absolutely no accommodation for about eighty percent of asylum seekers in France. away places for them to stay and um, so for a lot of them they're f- left with no other option but to hang out in Calais uh, and that's why and for a lot of those people as well they have families in the UK um, and they want to be reunited with them um, so but yeah but it is it's a problem in Calais but I mean it's it's just you know it's just a reflection of what's happening in the rest of the w- rest of the continent. Right. Sorry can I just check what was that, that website you mentioned at the start? That's data.unhcr.org <coughs> yeah. Yeah, I have a question relating to the, the data uh, that you've been referring to, uh, because some people have been saying
0: that a large proportion of the refugees are young men in particular, which mm-hmm. possibly doesn't make sense when you consider the um, yeah, the arduous journey they've uh,
1: had to make. But I was wondering if you have any um, data on that. that yeah. Well, if but you look if you look at that website, it'll show you what the proportion yeah. is of young men. You, it's about sixty or seventy percent, something like that, and you can find it there. I mean, this idea that are just young men here and they're coming to get jobs as well. This is what happens in absolutely every refugee crisis: is that the young men go because and they leave their families behind them. They go find work and a place to stay, and then they send for their families to come join them. You know, that's that's what happens. You know, you don't want to bring you know, your your you don't want to bring vulnerable people with you on one of these journeys. But I mean, the data's there on the, but there are definitely more young men, here. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm conscious that, uh, that we're eating into time for the next one, so I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, excuse Jodie and myself, because we we're actually going to do work while you're going to be listening to the, the next session on broadcasting, which is my cue as well to thank the Broadcasting <coughs> because they actually have, for the first time, provided funding mm-hmm. for this event, and uh, I know Jerry will be introducing the speakers to the next session, but that's worthwhile. On the final point, I suppose there is an irony in people in Ireland being surprised that men go ahead of their families to try to eke out a living as if we had never done that as a nation before. Uh, and I suppose as for Kent, well, they could have been worse, they could have ended up in Carrick Mines. <laughs> okay. And on that note, um, thanks very much. Uh, thanks again. Good luck for the rest of the day.
1: Cheers. cheers.
0: Cheers.